Praise be Jesus Christ. It's my joy to be with you all this evening. And this morning I got up, I was determined to get a workout in, so I went to the gym. It's been part of the New Year plan to pray the rosary when I'm on the treadmill. So dangling and try not to get tangled with the wires and all that. But today's the Luminous Mysteries, right? Thursday. It's very fitting because we're talking about the sacraments. Earthly things, and yet somehow God himself can manifest himself through those things. Father tells me that part of his plan, we should say it's part of God's plan for Christ the King this year, is focused on a specific passage from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 and specifically verse 42. If you're familiar with that book, in the beginning of Acts, you have the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and it transforms the disciples with the Blessed Mother praying for, for them in the upper room. It transforms them into people who were scared, frightened, into bold apostles. And then Luke tells us, as the author of Acts, he says, the people who joined the apostles, the people who joined their numbers, they began to live this form of communal life in which they dedicated themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the communal life together, the breaking of the bread, and prayer. Those four things. And Father believes, and I believe too, that those four things are the will of God for this community. And these formation nights, in some sense, are patterned after those four things. My talk, in some sense, is going to take the teaching of the apostles, the teaching that comes to us through the church, and it's going to show how it also bleeds into the breaking of the bread. So I want to hit both of those this evening with my talk. By the way, let me put in a quick plug for the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I meant to have one up here with me. If you don't have one, you should get it. The Catechism is split into these four pillars. The creed, the sacramental life of the church, the moral life, and prayer. Those four pillars coincide with the same four things that Luke mentions in Acts. The same four. And when I was in the summer year, uh, the summer of the year, my last year in high school, when I really, really came to encounter Christ, the living Christ, I spent a lot of nights under the stars, sitting in the back of a pickup, thumbing through that catechism with my friends. And I mean, I was on fire. Like, is this, he's real. So what does he want me to know? And the index of that thing, any question a high schooler could be thinking of at that moment, I would flip to the index and it would give me amazing things to chew on. So if you don't have a catechism, I encourage you to pick it up. And maybe that can be part of your own personal formation. Enough about that. Let me throw in one last thing because Father mentioned this, yeah? That's amazing that we're going to have this chance. 
If you were there on the leadership retreat, you know that I mentioned we need to take more seriously our university education. Universities, they bear that name because the truth is universal. And yet the ways that our universities tend to operate now, they tend to silo the different disciplines and they push you, they force you to become very practical and practical skills are good. You'll be very thankful for the practical skills of a nurse when you're in her care. But practical skills alone are not enough because you can do things practically very well and do evil with them. That's why traditionally the two disciplines that are able to unite all of the other disciplines, philosophy and theology. If there's any philosophy majors in here, kudos to you. But even philosophy, even though it has that uh, uniting power, because we're sinful and we're affected, uh, we still have the effects of original sin, it's theology, the queen of the sciences, that can really unite and heal everything that's broken. So what a beautiful opportunity for us to have this theology class come in the next semester. Please check it out. Remember, there's sign-up sheets on the two back tables. So on your way out, if you're interested, let us know. All that being said, let's come to what we actually came to hear tonight, right? God or the world? Cultivating a sacramental worldview as the key to answering the question. I want to set up the framework so we can understand better the question that's in play here. Let me start with the word world. If you thumb through scripture, the word world is multivalent. And that's important. Sometimes it's used to mean moral evil. Take, for instance, 1 John chapter 2, where John tells us, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. These are strong words, right? For all that is in the world, namely the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Okay. Strong words. But what is he talking about? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. He's talking about moral depravity. He's talking about moral evil. Paul says something similar in Romans 12. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Okay, that's one use of world in the Bible. Here's a second one. Sometimes the biblical authors use the word world to refer to the totality of people that exist. For God so loved the world. That's the football game verse, right? John 3.16. That's obviously a different meaning, right? Because you can't say, do not love the world, and then go and say, for God so loved the world. A different meaning. He loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God sent the son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. One last meaning of world that I want to bring up. 
world can be used to denote the created order, the cosmos. Think, for instance, of the first chapter of Genesis and the creation of the cosmos. It's very beautiful, it's poetic, it's rhythmic. The six days of creation followed by the seventh day. And what does God say when he's done on that sixth day? And in particular, after having created us, humanity in his image and likeness, he says, God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. And there are no superlatives in Hebrew. So it actually says, if you could read Hebrew, it was good, good. That's how they have to emphasize something. Okay, those three meanings, right? We've got moral corruption, the totality of people that exist, and the whole created order. The first one is not in play in this talk, all right? Because that's easy. If it's like God or the world, that's like God or evil. God, right? Then you can confidently sing with Fernando Ortega, you can have all this world. Give me Jesus. All right, that's easy, right? If that's what we're talking about, world, that's not the question. It's two and three that are in play right now. Us and the created cosmos. Everybody with me on world? All right, let's move to another important word in the question. Sacrament. The catechism, that book I just pumped at the beginning of my talk, says this. This is paragraph 1131. The sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. The visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated signify and make present the graces proper to each sacrament. Lastly, it says they bear fruit in those who receive them with the required dispositions. That's an interesting point at the end, because you could be there and experiencing a sacrament, but if your heart and your mind and your entire self, if they're not prepared to receive the sacrament, there's gonna be no fruit. But let me draw out a few things from that definition given by the catechism that I think are important here. Note it says that sacraments are signs, visible ones, there's something outward, something that can be perceived with your senses. And yet, those signs, it says, dispense divine life. They make present grace. In this physical, tangible thing, the very life of God is communicated. Something that's visible can communicate what's invisible. I should say, too, there's, um, there's a train of theology that really looks down upon a period of the church in which theology was dominated by what's called scholasticism. And the accusation is made that the sacraments are just these mechanized ways of dispensing grace. You know, say the right words, have the right things, God dispenses grace, like a 25-cent machine at a store if they still have those. They had those when I was growing up. That's not why the sacraments exist. If you look in the beginning of the section of the catechism where it talks about the sacraments, there's this beautiful piece of this artwork. It's a fresco and it's ancient. 
And you've got the woman who had been bleeding for years, the woman with the hemorrhage, and she touches the cloak of Christ. You all remember that gospel story? And she's healed, and he didn't even know that she was doing it. Right? He says, who touched me? And then she reveals herself, and then he reveals to her that not only has she been healed physically, but spiritually as well. And the catechism at that moment, it brings up this quote from St. Leo the Great. It says, what was visible in our Savior has passed over into his mysteries. The sacraments aren't these simple, mechanical, or magical things that we do to automatically get grace. They are the way that Jesus Christ decided that he would give his divine life to the world after he ascended to the Father. He established the sacraments purposely. That just, that changes the whole way you understand a sacrament. What Jesus did when he walked the earth, he's still doing it through his body, which is the church. And we call the, that doing the sacraments. Note too how beautiful a sacrament is then, because it has this outward and this inward part. It's able to reach you in the fullness of who you are, in your humanity. That's why it has this tangible part to it. You know, I could want to express my faith in Christ and I could kneel down at my bed at night and I could pray so ardently, Jesus, come into me. It's the love of God that in the Eucharist, you can physically receive him into you. He wants all of you. Not just your spirit, but also your body. Maybe you did something horribly wrong, something your conscience is, it feels very guilty about. And you could pray your guts out. God, forgive me. Please forgive me. Because there's an outward sign in the sacrament, when the priest says, I absolve you from your sins, and he makes the sign of the cross in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you get to hear Jesus say to you, I forgive you. That's powerful. Thank you, Lord, for addressing my needs, right? It's not just the spirit, like I'm throwing something out into the void and I hope that it reaches its goal. God in the sacrament says, I'm going to meet you in the totality of who you are. Lastly, that definition from the catechism says that they're efficacious. They effect something, which means they're not just symbols. We don't just look at what appears to be bread and we say like, I'm going to make believe that that's Jesus. They affect something. They actually affect the very thing that they signify. They do something. One of the most powerful examples for me was the day I took my wedding vows. And I stood there in front of so many loved ones. We had an army of priests and deacons behind us praying for us. And my spiritual director, this Carmelite priest, Father Thomas, was there to hear our vows. And I said these exact words. I said, I, Brian, take you, Adrian, to be my wife. I promise to be true to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. And when she said those vows back to me, 
it was complete. We gave a tangible outward sign of what God actually did in the sacrament of marriage. We were bound together till death, all the days of our lives. Sickness or health, no matter what happens, God actually does something. It's not just a symbol in which you play make-believe. God works through the sacraments. So this, um, I'll finish this section by just saying, remember that there's always this outward part and this invisible reality that's created, um, that's given through it. The two words in the Christian tradition, the Latin word sacramentum, its equivalent in Greek is mysterion. And they, they sort of lean into the two sides of the sacrament. Sacramentum emphasizes the sign, the outward sign. Mysterion, the mystery, emphasizes the invisible reality. Both are present in the sacraments. Okay, so we got world, we got sacrament. Why is Dr. Pedraza saying the world can be sacramental? Because if you're going to cultivate a sacramental worldview, that's a way of understanding not just the sacraments, which are the most important manifestations of God's grace through some visible outward sign, but the entire world, all of the cosmos can be sacramental, is sacramental. How can that be? Let's try and take a little glimpse into the biblical worldview to understand the way that the people who lived during biblical times might understand this. The beginning of the Gospel of John starts like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and get this, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. If everything that exists is created through the word, then everything that exists bears the mark of the word. St. Bonaventure says something to the effect of everything that exists is like a word that speaks the one divine word. To the rest of the world. Here's Acts 17:28. This is the feast day of St. Paul's conversion. St. Paul, after he had his conversion, went to go preach to the Gentiles. In the midst of the Roman Empire, he walked into the Areopagus and he spoke to their learned men, their philosophers, and he pointed to an altar to an unknown God, a pagan God. And one of the lines that he says as he's preaching to those people, he says, that unknown God, I know who he is. And then he says this, in him we live and move and have our being. The totality of who you are exists because you were created through the word. You your soul, your body, your mind, your heart can be a sacramental manifestation of God himself. And in fact, you're created to be that. That's why we say you are in his image and likeness. One more verse from St. Paul. This is Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Ever since the creation of the world, 
God's invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. You catch what Paul is trying to say? We should be able to perceive in anything that exists the Creator. The world strikes us as a gift. It's that sort of mystery. You know, I, I mentioned that the, the Greek word is mysterion. You know, what's up with mystery? We're, we're not talking about like a detective story here. Mystery in theology means something that is so vast and infinite, and yet we're able to grasp a small part of it. And we can grasp more and more of it, but we'll never get the totality of it. You know, the image I like to think of was given to me by one of my college professors. Think of a little girl in a cathedral trying to embrace a pillar, you know, one of these massive pillars in a cathedral. It's like, does she have it? Does she, get, you know, does, does she have the church in her hands? No, but she's got a part of it, right? That's what it means to, for there to be a mystery in Christianity. It's something that we could understand a part of it, and we can grow in our understanding of it, but you never get the whole thing. Well, creation is a mystery. It's not the sort of mystery when you're puzzling over an anatomy test or a physics exam, right? That sort of mystery, it, it's agonizing. It annoys you when you don't know it. This sort of mystery, it strikes you as a gift. If you've ever woken up early, maybe you went for a run and you saw the sunrise, you get a glimpse of mystery and it's not agonizing, it doesn't annoy you. It makes you think, if this is a gift, there must be a giver. The world itself can point then to the giver because it is a gift. Now, there are certain things that happen in your life that would bring up the sacramentality of the world very clearly. Seeing the sunrise or the sunset might be one of them. A really powerful one for me was the birth of my first son, Joseph. The first time I saw him was in an ultrasound. You know, and he looked like this, you know, this cute little blob, clearly the heart beating, and I saw him in that dark room on that screen and I fell in love. But then we waited for months and months and months, and finally, in that room in the hospital, when he emerged from the womb, I just, as a father, I cannot tell you what that moment feels like to see your first child emerge from the womb. I was so determined to, you know, we hadn't told anybody his name because you don't want to get thrown at you, thrown back at you, or your family members disagreeing with your name choice. So, you know, I had planned when he emerges, I'm going to tell the world his name is Joseph. It's a good fatherly thing to do. It's a good biblical thing, right? Like the father to declare the name of that child. Maybe the only time in my life where I was struck into silence and I could not speak. That's how much awe and wonder I felt at that moment. That's a powerful sacramental moment that shows me that the world, humanity, is sacramental and can manifest something of God. Even though there might be experiences in your own life which when you reflect upon them, you could say, yeah, it's kind of obvious when I think about it. The world really is sacramental. It really can manifest God. I think there are times when we unwittingly imbibe challenges 
to understanding the world as sacramental. You might not even be conscious of this, but let me give you three challenges. The first one, scientism. Scientism is, no, I'm not just talking about science. The church embraces science. Some of the greatest scientists, and I don't mean just like a good scientist, but like the kind who did monumental things, were Catholic. The guy who came up with the Big Bang, Father George Lumate, was a priest. If you remember in junior high or middle school doing uh, squares with jeans, Gregor Mendel, he's a monk, right? That's two of like this long litany of Catholic scientists, right? The church embraces science, but scientism is the belief that reality is completely reducible to what is empirical. All of reality can be explained by science alone. This is a belief that is widely held in the academy. It is widely held by the scientists who teach and profess truths, you know, supposedly at this university, at many universities. Scientism. Let me just start by saying the premise of scientism is self-defeating, right? So if we have any philosophy majors in here, you know, a self-defeating argument. To say that everything can be, reality can only be confirmed by science is a statement that can't be confirmed by science itself, right? That's a self-defeating argument. From the get-go, you're off on the wrong foot if that's your take. But nevertheless, this belief is prominent. Note what happens here. The sacramental worldview, the way that the church, the church wants all of you, right? It wants to embrace your soul and your body. It wants what's invisible and what's visible. That's why many people say that the Catholic Church is a both-and sort of a thing. It doesn't force you to pick just one part of you or the other. It wants all of you. But scientism says, no, I'm only taking half. That sacramental worldview thing, I want just the world and the empirical stuff. Only the sensible stuff is what's true. Here's a professor who died only a few years ago from Cornell University. That's where my wife went to school. A biologist there. He says, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. And these are basically Darwin's views. There are no gods, no purposes, and no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I am going to be dead. That's the end of me. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. That's a guy who carries it to its logical conclusion. I mean, there are some proponents of scientism who don't want to go that far, but he's taking it to the very end. If you're gonna begin with saying reality is determined solely by science and only what's empirical is real, then even the free choices that you think you made this morning, getting out of bed, grabbing a cup of coffee, brushing your teeth, calling your parents, whatever it was, this guy says, no way, you did not freely do that. It was already predetermined by the matter and the laws of physics. You think you chose it freely, but you did not. That's why he's saying something, there's no ultimate foundation for ethics. 
How can you call anything good? How can you lay the blame at anyone's feet? This is really drastic, right? But this is a professor at an Ivy League institution. Let me give you another one. Here's Sam Harris, noted atheist. He's sort of like a, an atheist evangelist. As many critics of religion have pointed out, the notion of a creator poses an immediate problem of an infinite regress. If God created the universe, what created God? This is one of the arguments that's thrown out by hardcore atheists often. I'm going to answer that in a second. But just note that this view is very predominant in the scientific academy. And it severs the world from the reality that is invisible and that is spiritual. So that's the first error. Second error. Now I want to be careful here because I'm going to call this a Protestant worldview. But by saying that, I don't want to demean all of Protestantism, nor do I want to say that Protestantism is monolithic, right? There are so many strands of Protestantism out there. However, traditional Protestantism tends to go to the other side of the spectrum, right? Instead of saying the only thing that's real, the only thing that matters is the tangible stuff, it places the emphasis on the spiritual reality to the detriment of what's human, of what's worldly. Think, for instance, of Martin Luther and his famous solas. We'll take sola fide, faith alone. Why did he say salvation comes by faith alone? He wanted to reject the Catholic vision which says salvation is by faith and good works. But why would he reject the good works? Because he had no trust in humanity. Perhaps with good reason, because at the time, corruption was so widespread in the church. It was the poor witness of Catholics, lay people and ordained, that helped contribute to that. But note what happens when you say, doing good to your neighbor, loving your neighbor, is important for salvation. If you do away with that, you've taken away something that's tangible, that's earthly, and that's human. And you say, no, the only thing that matters is faith, the invisible part. Another way that you might take faith alone, the Catholic Church has embraced the complementarity of faith and reason for getting to the truth. St. John Paul II said, faith and reason are the two wings by which the human spirit takes flight to the truth. Remember, the church was born in the Roman Empire. The Romans idolized the Greeks, and so Greek philosophy was huge. That's why the church used what was good out of the ancient Greek philosophy for its own purposes, to promote the gospel. That's why we say words like transubstantiation when we talk about the Eucharist. The very substance of that bread has been turned into God. That's a word, we're taking Greek philosophy, we're taking something from Aristotle there when we say that. Right? That runs deep in the Christian tradition to the very beginning. Well, Luther had a marked antagonism towards the church's embrace of classic philosophy. 
He despised the use of the word transubstantiation. He preferred biblical terms for referring to those sorts of realities. Perhaps even stronger than the Lutheran tradition would be the Reformed tradition, so the tradition that stems from John Calvin. I got to experience that personally because when I was first going through my conversion, it was a Presbyterian girl who really reached out to me and introduced me to the living Christ. Presbyterians are within the Reformed tradition. And she brought me to the house of her pastor. And we were sitting in the backyard at this table, and he had us take out our Bibles, and he was going through all of these verses. And it's part of the Reformed tradition. It's you know, Calvin's teaching that man is completely deprived, utterly evil. So much so that that pastor told me, if there was a man who had not accepted Christ, and he was a dad, and he gave a bowl of cereal to his son for breakfast, he was doing an evil deed. Because humans are utterly depraved. Now, it's... This is not the talk for going into the fullness of Reformed theology or Lutheran theology. And their arguments are more complex and more substantial than the sort of view that I can give you right here. And I have friends who are Protestant, and in fact, the ones who are in the Reformed tradition tend to be the ones that I, am, I have the greatest respect for because they do want to engage in the faith intellectually. But just see that out of traditional Protestantism, there is this rejection of what's human and what's worldly. So they're the opposite end of the spectrum from scientism. They too sever the sacramental worldview, but on the other side. One last example of that is the great Reformed theologian Karl Barth probably the greatest 20th century Protestant theologian. <laughs> Bart said that the analogia entis, that's Latin for the analogy of being, he called it the, the invention of the Antichrist. So what is he getting at with this? The tradition has embraced, the Catholic tradition has embraced the fact that we can speak about created things and predicate things of them that we can also predicate of God. So Father Reuben in the back corner, you could say Father Reuben, Father Reuben is good. And God is good. To say that sort of a thing, you're using the analogy of being. I know that Father Reuben is good. Not just by his creation. I mean, everything that God makes is good. But he's a good, virtuous man too. But to be able, be able to say that, right? Is you're using the analogy of being. Bart rejected that because he did not want to say that you could predicate something of creation in the same way that you can say it of God. And so he completely rejected that sort of language. He said it's the invention of the Antichrist, and in fact he said it's the only thing that would keep me from being a Catholic. Again, a severing of the sacramental worldview. Here's the third challenge that you might imbibe. So we did this half and then we did this half. There's one more way in which there can be a difficulty. And this way is secularism. 
It's predominant in American culture today. It's the belief that the public square is a place necessarily devoid of God, devoid of religion. Think, for instance, of cases where prayer is being excised from public schools or Ten Commandments from the courthouse or the HHS mandate in which the fight over contraception and religious rights of companies to not issue contraception to their employees, right? There's this pressure that's arised in the culture that wants to say the public square should be utterly devoid of religion. And so it severs the sacramental worldview and it wants to keep both sides siloed. You can have the spiritual stuff, but just keep it in your church. When you go outside the doors of your church, that is the neutral zone. No religion and no God. Maybe one of the most prominent ways that this affects people, especially millennials, is, well, there was this study done by the sociologist Christian Smith, he's at Notre Dame. And he did a representative sample of teenagers. This is around 2004, 2005, and their religious beliefs. And one of the things that he got out of that was that teenagers at that time, and so today, they would be in their upper 20s, something like that, right? Teenagers of that time were unable to distinguish between three modes of discourse. Number one, confident talk about religious particularity. Number two, civil, respectful talk in the public square. And number three, offensive talk. He found that most teenagers at the time did not even consider that number one was a possibility. They did not think it was possible to talk about what was unique to your religious beliefs without offending other people. They only thought that two and three exist. Number two is, when you're in the public square, you're very civil and respectful. You keep to yourself your beliefs that might step on other people's toes. And number three is, if you're gonna be particular about your religious beliefs, you're gonna offend people. So what does this mean? People of that generation tend to think that you cannot talk about religious things that might upset other people. And if you do, you're being offensive. It's like, if you disagree with me, you hate me sort of ethos that permeates our culture. That has severed the sacramental worldview and siloed the visible from the invisible. That's problematic. Perhaps that's something that we as a culture have imbibed. Let me get even closer to home here. You're in college. How might this really affect you? Pope Benedict XVI, when he first became Pope, he was good friends with John Paul II. John Paul II is a hero of mine. I wrote my dissertation on him. And Pope Benedict's first homily, he actually reflected upon John Paul II's first homily when JP II became Pope. And JP II said his famous words in that homily, do not be afraid, open wide the doors to Christ. Now, Benedict, his first homily, this is what he had to say. Note two, when JP2 says, do not be afraid there, 
what is he talking about? Fear. The fear is not of like, don't be afraid of other people or don't be afraid of the world. It's don't be afraid of Jesus. Do not be afraid. Open wide the doors to Christ. So Benedict's going to reflect on this. This is 2005. He said, At this point, my mind goes back to October 22nd of 1978, when Pope John Paul II began his ministry here in St. Peter's Square. His words on that occasion constantly echo in my ears. Do not be afraid. Open wide the doors for Christ. The Pope was addressing the mighty, the powerful of this world who feared that Christ might take away something of their power if they were to let him in, if they were to allow the faith to be free. Yes, he would certainly have taken something away from them, the dominion of corruption, the manipulation of law and the freedom to do as they pleased. But he would not have taken away anything that pertains to human freedom or dignity or to the building of a just society. But the Pope was also speaking to everyone, especially the young. So let's hear ourselves in this. Are we not perhaps all afraid in some way? If we let Christ enter fully into our lives, if we open ourselves totally to him, are we not afraid? Are we not afraid that he might take something away from us? Are we not perhaps afraid to give up something significant, something unique, something that makes life so beautiful? Do we not then risk ending up diminished and deprived of our freedom? And once again, the Pope said, no. If we let Christ into our lives, we lose nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing of what makes life free, beautiful, and great. No, only in this friendship are the doors of life opened wide. Only in this friendship is the great potential of human existence truly revealed. Only in this friendship do we experience beauty and liberation. And so today, with great strength and great conviction, on the basis of long personal experience of life, I say to you, dear young people, do not be afraid of Christ. He takes nothing away, and he gives you everything. When we give ourselves to him, we receive a hundredfold in return. Yes, open, open wide the doors to Christ, and you will find true life. His words speak powerfully to me, and I hope they do to you as well. When I was in college, the things that constantly weighed down and pressed against me, the typical college approach to sex and alcohol, those are easy ones, right? It's like, if I give myself to you, Jesus, do I really have to give up certain things? Isn't that going to make me less of me? I'm scared to do that. But Pope Benedict is saying, no, if you give yourself over, you get the fullness of who you are in your humanity. But even in things that are not so obvious, right? Maybe you're wondering what your vocation is. There's a tendency sometimes to think, ah, I really care about my faith. I guess this means I have to do a job that's church-related. I gotta be a theology teacher. I need to be a religious educator. That too severs the sacramental worldview. It's possible 
to be in the world and to be a light to that world. Sometimes you get it when, you know, well-meaning elders in the faith, they see you at daily mass and they might say like, oh, are you going to be a priest, young man? You know, it's like, that's awesome that you think that, but holy people need to be husbands and wives too. And we need holy priests. Right, so in more obvious ways and less obvious ways, this sort of thinking has crept into us in which we're scared to give ourselves fully over to Christ, thinking that we might have to sacrifice something of ourselves and our humanity, when the truth is, Pope Benedict is saying, you actually find the fullness of who you are. Think of all the saints. Think of your favorite saints. They don't lack personality. They're more alive than we are. Probably going to run, Father Andrew, 10 minutes long? Yeah. Speaking of saints, I want to turn to a saint who I think can help us understand this sacramental worldview better. Saint Augustine. My family and I had a chance to go to Rome. My parents took us over Christmas break. And we went to Mass at St. Peter's. If you've ever been there, then you know how beautiful it is. And if you haven't been there, find a way to get there. Travel. Do a semester abroad. In the back of St. Peter's, Bernini did this beautiful chair of Peter. And there are four saints upholding it, and Augustine is one of them. It's Bernini's way of saying he is one of the saints that upholds the faith of the church. I think Augustine is a really powerful saint for you and for me just because of the sort of life that he lived. He was a gifted student, really good in his education. He studied rhetoric. It was part of the classical education at the time. And he was so good that he was in demand. People wanted him to give speeches. He also had his dark parts. He was addicted to lust. He had a mistress starting at the age of 19. He loved her dearly. He even fathered a child with her, unmarried. He had a hard time letting go of her. He had a hard time letting go of the, the theater shows that happened in the Roman Empire at the time. And they were full of debauchery, that sort of a thing. And yet, in this man, a lot of it was the prayers of his mother, who's also a saint, Saint Monica. I got to pray uh, at her relics there in Rome too. But it was also this grace that God had given him to desire the truth. Since he was into rhetoric, he studied this um, book by Cicero that was a rhetorical defense of philosophy. So he studied it for the purpose of learning how to give speeches, how to communicate well. But the content was on philosophy, and it pushed him to think, what is actually true? That's what philosophy is supposed to be, a pursuit of the truth. Now, this path was a winding one for him in his pursuit of the truth. He went to go hear St. Ambrose, who was known for giving great homilies. Why? Because he wanted to 
learn about the rhetoric that Ambrose did. He actually didn't care about the content, right? So he would sit there in the crowd listening to Ambrose preach, analyzing his form. And he would hear the scriptures from Ambrose. And Augustine would even say, this guy is a really good speaker, but those scriptures, they're so crude. I'd rather read Cicero than the Bible. That was early on in his life. He dabbled in this quasi-Christian cult called Manichaeism. Now get this. Here's the belief of the Manichaeans. They were dualistic. They severed things, like sacramental worldviews. The Manichaeans believed that God was a luminous body, a body of light, and that God is the author of good, but a separate evil substance authors evil, and matter is evil. So spirit, light, is good, matter, evil. Do you see how the sacramental worldview has been severed by the Manichaeans? Augustine, here's a quote from his Confessions. If you've never read the Confessions, I hope you get a chance to read the Confessions in your college education. And even if the liberal arts aren't a part of your education, pick up a book like that and really drink it in. But in the Confessions, he says this about the Manichaeans. I was gradually led to believe such nonsense as that a fig wept when it was plucked, and that the tree which bore it shed tears of mother's milk. But if some sanctified member of the sect were to eat the fig, someone else, of course, would have committed the sin of plucking it, he mentions. He would digest it and breathe it out again in the form of angels or even as particles of God, retching them up as he groaned in prayer. Yeah, this is the sect that Augustine was a part of. This is the religious belief that he gave himself to for some time. But eventually he became displeased with the Manichaeans. One of the reasons why he became displeased was because Augustine started thinking about scientific claims. Note that the Manichaeans wanted to emphasize the spiritual to the detriment of the material. Now here's the scientific claim. Augustine says this, I had read a great many scientific books which were still alive in my memory. When I compared them with the tedious tales of the Manichaeans, it seemed to me that of the two, the theories of the scientists were the more likely to be true, for their thoughts could reach far enough to form a judgment about the world around them, though they found no trace of him who is the master of it. Note the similarity with today, right? There was a strand of um, fundamentalism in Christianity that because it wants to err so much on the side of the spiritual to the detriment of what's human and material, it'll say, Evolution, science, no way. Genesis said the world was created in six days, and that's it. It took six 24-hour days. To which the atheistic scientist then says, how come Genesis 1 doesn't mention dinosaurs, or marsupials, or bacteria? And then that person, that Christian says, oh man, you're right. I guess this is all wrong. What I've grown up believing has been fake the whole time. Augustine's dealing with the same thing here. Listen to him. The reason and understanding by which scientists investigate these things are gifts they have from you. He's talking to God. 
By means of them, they've discovered much and foretold eclipses of the sun and moon many years before they happened. They calculated the day and the hours of the eclipse and whether it would be total or partial, and their reckonings were found correct because it all happened as they had predicted. The astronomers are flattered and claim the credit for themselves. They lapse into pride without respect for you, my God, and fall into shadow away from your light. He wrestled with the same things that challenge us today. Eventually, his path led him to read some books of philosophy of the Neoplatonists, people who were within the tradition of Plato, though in significant ways added and were a bit different than Plato's actual thought. And this encounter with Neoplatonism was really important for Augustine because it totally transformed the way he understood creation. He didn't see this conflict anymore between the material and the spiritual. He didn't see a conflict between the creator and everything that's created. Y'all still with me at this point? You're hanging with me, right? Okay, here's, what, here's something he says as he was reflecting on the Neoplatonists. You, God, provided me with some books by the Platonists, translated from the Greek into Latin. In them I read, not that the same words were used, but precisely the same doctrine was taught, that in the beginning was the Logos. The Platonists believed that God was utterly transcendent and created everything through the Logos. And the Word was God. He was God. He was with God in the beginning. Everything was made through Him. You would see Augustine just like salivating, like, oh, this makes so much sense now. Nothing came to be without Him. What was made is alive with his life, and that life was the light of humankind. And then, Neoplatonists believed. So if God is utterly transcendent, you had to make an ascent to God, intellectually. And Augustine wanted to do that so much. Let me just say a note about this idea of transcendence. This is really important if you're going to combat the error of scientism. If God is utterly transcendent, he's not on the same level as anything that's created. This is the error of scientism. Right? Going back to that question, well, if God created the Big Bang, well, who created God? Note that this error, it's like a chain of dominoes, right? And it's like, oh, you're saying God is the first domino? Well, let me put another domino behind him because those dominoes can keep going. That's problematic because instead of the analogy of being, that's like saying there's this category called being and God fits in it and you fit in it and the tree fits in it. And if being is univocal like that, that means there's something greater than God, that category that is being. That's an error, which is why the church has always proclaimed this analogy of being. The Fourth Lateran Council said, for any similarity between a creature and God, there's a greater infinite dissimilarity. So when we say Father Reuben is good, 
Yes, God is good, but not in the same way, because God is goodness itself. And Father Reuben only participates. He's a created participation in the good that is God. Let me give you a more concrete example that might help you understand what I'm saying. My dad has this painting of my mom. He loves it when she was, when she was young. And my mom's a beautiful woman. If you had a painting of someone that you loved, if I had a painting of my wife, you could say, oh, that painting is almost as beautiful as you, sweetheart. But it can't compare to you. You know, you're the real thing. But you would never say the other direction. Oh, sweetheart, you're almost as beautiful as that painting, right? That's a, don't do that, right? My dad would never say that, and I'm never going to say that to my own wife. If you can grasp the problem that's there, then you grasp a little bit about what's going on, why the church says there's an analogy of being. God's goodness is infinitely greater. He is goodness. He's not someone that is in the category of being. He is being. And everything that's created is a created participation in his being. That's how utterly transcendent he is. So, if he's not on the same horizontal plane as everything else, then you can't say, well, who created God? That's like, what? No, he's not on this plane, right? That shows you that the atheistic scientists, like, you didn't understand what the classic Greek philosophers were saying, and you don't understand what St. Thomas is trying to tell us. That's not what we mean when we say God is the first mover or the first cause. That would be like saying, Shakespeare writes the play Hamlet, and the opening words of Act One are the start of everything. They're the source of the creation of that play. That's where the atheistic scientist is trying to say, oh, you're putting God there? No, I could find something else that's actually there. That's not what we're saying. We're saying Shakespeare wrote the play. You can't get there within the story of the play itself. But everything in that play is contingent on the fact that there was a mind that authored it. That's the sort of causation we mean when we're talking about God causing the world. Why does this matter? That God is transcendent. It means that he does not compete with you. If he's on the same level, then he competes with you for space. He competes with you for being. But if he's utterly transcendent, then he can be intimately close to you without competing with you. Think about what Pope Benedict says. Are you worried about losing something? You won't lose anything if you give yourself over to God. You'll find the fullness of yourself. He doesn't compete with you. Augustine, one of his most famous lines from the Confessions, he says, you are more intimately present to me than my innermost being, and yet you are higher than the highest peak of my spirit. I know we're running out of time, but let me say this last thing. So that's against scientism. How would we combat a sort of traditional Protestant worldview that would downplay what's human in favor of that which is spiritual? There's this line from the Confessions that I think is so funny, and I, I read it. 
and in a class of doctoral theology students, and a lot of my peers were angry with Augustine for this. This is what he says. What excuse can I make for myself when often, as I sit at home, I cannot turn my eyes from the sight of a lizard catching flies or a spider entangling them as they fly into her web? Does it make any difference that these are small animals? It's true that the sight of them inspires me to praise you for the wonders of your creation and the order in which you've disposed all things. But I am not intent upon your praises when I first begin to watch. It is one thing to rise quickly from a fall, another not to fall at all. My peers said, Augustine is chastising himself for marveling at a lizard or a spider? This guy's got some psychological self-hatred. This guy's scrupulous. I think they missed the lesson that Augustine wanted to give. Augustine is saying that his, he let his heart rest in the created thing when your heart is really only made to rest in God himself. The created thing is supposed to lead you to praise the creator. His most famous line from the Confessions is, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That's the message that he wants to get across. So what does this mean for you and for me? Those things that are worldly, that are human, you don't have to reject them, but they have to be ordered to the love of God. They have to lead you to praise the Creator whenever you enjoy that created thing. And if you enjoy that thing and let your heart rest in it, instead of in Him, it's a sin and it causes you to disintegrate. Or if it's not ordered to God, it causes you to disintegrate. Augustine says, if the things of this world delight you, praise God for them, but turn your love away from them and give it to their maker, so that in the things that please you, you may not displease him. If your delight is in souls, love them in God, because they too are frail and stand firm only when they cling to him. Love them then in him and draw as many with you to him as you can. To give you one concrete example, if you're wondering if your love of another person is ordered well to God, I remember flipping through one of my prayer journals in college when I was dating this girl. I loved her. But I could tell it wasn't ordered to God because I spent most of my journal talking about her instead of talking to him. That's a good sign that your heart is resting in the created thing instead of the creator of the created thing. Alcohol is good. Order it to God. When it's ordered to God, you drink in moderation. You drink better beer. Yeah. Sex is good. Order it to God. You enjoy it in the fullness that is the marital life, in which you can truly entrust yourself to someone, knowing that they entrust themselves to you fully, too. You can go on and on about the different things that need to be ordered to God. 
what we're going to do, Father Andrew, in just a couple minutes, he's going to go and bring the teacher of all teachers, Christ himself here. And we're just going to spend a few minutes in adoration. We're going to end by 8.30, that adoration time. So it's a short time, just 15 minutes. But do you remember how I said that Augustine believed you had to make an ascent through his Neoplatonism, his reading of the Platonists, to get to God? He found that by philosophy alone, he could not make that ascent. Why? Because of sin. There's only one way to make that ascent. It's in Jesus Christ himself. Christ is the ladder by which you can ascend to God. And the Eucharist is the way that you make that ascent. Because it's in the Eucharist where we offer ourselves and even the created cosmos, right? Bread and wine. And we offer it all to God, the Father, in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit transforms them into Jesus. We're really united with him. That's what happens at Mass. And even in adoration, to really adore Jesus can help you, can train you to order all things to God. Because in adoring him, you tell him, you're first and you're last. You're everything, and I can only love things in you. And that's why I wanted to end with this moment of Eucharistic adoration. I don't want this to be just any time of prayer for you. But let this be a time where you say to yourself, or better yet, that you say to Jesus, I love you and I want to order everything to you. And the parts that are disordered, help me to order them to you. I'll end with these words of Augustine, and I'll let them enter us into this time of adoration. He says, Late have I loved you, beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. You were within, but I was outside, seeking there for you. And upon the lovely things you have made, I rushed headlong. I, misshapen. You were with me, but I was not with you. They held me back far from you. Those things which would have no being were they not in you. And yet you called, shouted, broke through my deafness. You flared, blazed, and banished my blindness. You lavished your fragrance, and I gasped. And now I pant for you. I tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst. You touched me and I burned for your peace.